those that are staying with us, let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. And as I give you time to find 2 Kings, let me fill you in on why we're doing this. We've been going through Matthew for a few years now. We have one more year to go. You think I'm joking every time. I'm not. But we're pa- we took a pause right between chapter 20 and chapter 21 of Matthew's Gospel because the next passage we'll be looking at is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And at that time, as Jesus was heading into Jerusalem, the, the weight of expectation that was upon His entrance, that was upon Him, was looking forward to the power of God to deliver His people through His chosen one. The expectation that, that Jesus was the Messiah who would, who would enter and overthrow the oppression, deliver His people from sin, resurrect the nation. That was the weight, the expectation of God's people upon the Messiah. And so before we get into that in a few weeks, we're going we're gonna to take just a five or six weeks this summer to look at some stories from the ministry of Elisha. Because in the ministry of Elisha, as I'll be telling you more a little bit, it was written to God's people when they, they were oppressed. These stories were written at a time when God's people were enslaved and when they were looking for deliverance and they wanted to know, does God have the power to restore His people? And by retelling the stories of the men and women of old, they were reminded that yes, God does indeed have the power to restore His people. So one of those accounts, one of those stories that we will hear this morning is from 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1-7. through Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside. Borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and she poured. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. This is the word of the Lord. As many of you noticed, I wasn't here last week. I was, I was performing a wedding up in Orlando. I have been in and been a part of a number of weddings. And there's one thing that almost every wedding I've been to has in common. They are all a hot mess. Yeah. If when, you are, when you are behind the scenes, when you are there as everybody's getting ready and gathering, it is chaos. Isn't it? I mean, you all, you've been there. You've seen this. Uh, one thing that this wedding had that I'd never seen before, it was, it was really neat. It was because it was at a special venue that often hosted weddings, and uh, they had a, a specialized wedding coordinator who really knew her stuff and made sure like we, we had everything in order. And she told us the night before, she said, when everybody gets here tomorrow, we have a butler. We have a dedicated butler for the wedding party. And if you lose your shoes, you call the butler. If you pop a button, 
call the butler. You need a lemonade, you call the butler. The butler's job is to make sure you have everything you need and you don't need to worry. And you know what? The butler did a great job. I've never seen anything like this. How many of us, though, picture God like that? You know, we read verses like Philippians 4.19, which says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And we see, oh, every need. And we picture God providing for all the little things we ask for. We, we bring to Him our, our inconveniences and our worries and our, our desires, and we expect God to meet our needs the way a butler uh, or a genie. And if we've done a good job, we'll, we'll get what we ask for. But that's not the picture Scripture gives us of how God meets our needs. We first have to understand what our true needs are. Our needs are not small And they are not easily met. We are, in fact, desperately empty. Sold into slavery without hope of deliverance. And when we understand that, only as we understand that, can we begin to see God as not a butler or a genie catering to our needs, but rather as a Savior who rescues us from a desperate situation so that we are filled and provided for. That's the lesson for God's people in this story from Elisha. In the ministry of Elisha, we see the power of God, a power that meets God's people in the midst of their distress, a power that restores them to a state of peace and comfort and joy. In this story, we see that He is a God who redeems, and by that we mean a God who provides all that we need to be delivered and to be cared for. The first thing we see and need to recognize, the first scene of the story, is that we are desperately empty. The story begins by introducing a character who is in a desperate situation. In verse 1, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. We don't need to go any farther than that to see from the context how desperate her situation is. Because in this time and in this culture, a widow was extremely vulnerable Usually they had no income. Usually they had no defense. Usually they had no security whatsoever. They had no voice in society. They were completely dependent on another relative, uh, 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 an in-law, a son, someone who could provide for and take care of them. But not only is she a widow, but she has two sons, sons who are now orphans, and their situation is also desperate. As verse 1 goes on, she says, The creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. What we need to notice here is that there is an implied failure on the part of God's people. God has always recognized the needs of three groups of people, orphans, widows, and immigrants, or sojourners, foreigners. These are, in in the Old Testament, brought up again and again as, as three of the most vulnerable peoples. And God required that the people of His covenant, His people, would show intentional and effective care for these people. Ensuring that they did not go without. We see this many times in Scripture. Just one example from Deuteronomy 14. The Lord says, And the sojourner, that's the immigrant, and the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. That same uh, concept carries through In the New Testament, in James 1, we're familiar with seeing that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep
keep oneself unstained from the world. This is not just a matter of common courtesy, of being kind to people in need. This is the very heart of God. As we see again and again, even the psalm that we just sang, taken from Psalm 146, says, The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. God calls His people to care for those in desperate need because God cares for those in desperate need. He wants us to reflect His heart. And yet in this story, we see the widow and her children are in a situation they should never have had to face. The fact that her children are being taken to cover their debts is a failure of the community to live out God's heart for them. The extreme desperation of their situation is evident in that the boys are to be made slaves. Slavery in every age is the ultimate helplessness. It is the lowest point of vulnerability. A slave has no power or right to deliver himself or herself. It's for this reason that Scripture often compares our spiritual state, our standing before God, to slavery. We are slaves to sin and unrighteousness and our desires. We are captives in need of release. Just one example in 2 Peter. The Apostle says, They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. We are all of us enslaved to our desires, our cravings, our longings, our fears. Anything that exhibits power over us makes us a slave. What a slave needs is not good advice. What a slave needs is not, hey, you need to change your situation. What a slave needs is deliverance. A slave needs a power from outside to deliver, to redeem. To be redeemed is to be purchased again, to be bought back. As we saw just a few weeks ago in Matthew 20, Jesus said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. A ransom, a payment that is given to redeem His people who are enslaved and held captive. We talk often in the church about being redeemed. I've been redeemed. I'm redeemed by God. But do we consider the implications of that? To say that we are redeemed implies that we were in a helpless situation that we could not fix. We couldn't remove ourselves from where we were. And only when God entered in and purchased us did our situation change. Those who are redeemed are unable to free themselves. And so when Elisha asks the woman in verse 2, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And the woman answers, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. The author is trying to drive home the point that this woman does not have enough to redeem her sons or herself from her desperate situation. There is no hope. She has only a jar of oil. To think that she could rescue or deliver or redeem her sons with only a jar of oil would be like us thinking that when your mortgage goes into default, thinking you could go in and pay off the whole balance by bringing a cup of sugar to the bank. What are they going to do with that? It's not, it's not going to do anything. It's like the song goes that we sing sometimes. Nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And so what does Elisha call her to do? 
Well, oddly enough, he calls her to increase her emptiness. Verse 3, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors. Empty vessels, not too few. Now, we might expect when he says, go outside to your neighbors, that he's going to say, go outside to your neighbors and tell them of this great injustice. Go tell your neighbors what's wrong. Go borrow some oil. Go borrow something that you can use to pay off the debt. But no. Once she takes this step, she will be surrounded by empty vessels, emptiness, nothing. What a great image, I think, of how God works. The prophet tells her that in order to receive the deliverance of God, she needs to be surrounded by emptiness because it is God who will bring the fullness. I like this image of of presenting our emptiness to God, recognizing that no matter how competent or skilled we may be, no matter how many little things in our life we can control and manage and solve, we're not able to come close to solving our deepest, truest, most serious needs. And that's not a bad thing. Your problem is not that you're needy. Your problem is not that you're desperately empty. Your problem is that in your emptiness, you keep trying to solve it by yourself. The woman, the widow, she recognized in her emptiness that she needed to cry out for help. Just as we sang earlier, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. We need to regularly remember that we need God, that we bring nothing that can help our situation. Why do we need to remember that? Is it just to keep us humble? No, that's a good thing. But we need to regularly regularly remember our need, our emptiness, because if we don't, we end up trusting the wrong things. If we think that we can bring something to solve our problems, then we will trust our looks. We will trust our friends. We will trust our career. We'll trust our charm, our money, our smarts. We'll trust those things to meet our heart's deepest needs. We'll trust those things to make us happy and secure. And we will end up just as empty as when we started. What will keep us back, keep us from going back to untrustworthy saviors is recognizing that in our desperate emptiness, God has made us miraculously full. And that's the second scene of the story. It begins with desperate emptiness, but then God makes us miraculously full. When this widow brought her desperate situation to Elisha's attention, he gave her these instructions in verse 3 and 4. Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Don't skimp on this. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. Make no mistake, this is, a, this is a miracle. This is like Jesus taking the five loaves and two fish and multiplying them to feed thousands. This is like Jesus taking the, the, the large vats of plain water and converting them into wine. It's God taking what exists in one form or amount and by the power of His creation, turning it into something else. Be careful to hear the way I said that. Was it, was it Elisha that multiplied the oil? No. Was it the woman that multiplied the oil? No. I've even heard some commentators suggest that, well, what actually happened was when this woman went around and started asking for empty vessels, then her neighbors became aware of her need and Elisha knew that they would come and gather together and meet the need and, and no. It was none of that nonsense. There's a neat detail in this. Verses five through seven. She went from him and shut the door 
behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her sons, bring me another vessel. He said, there's not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. So she came and told the man of God. In verse 5, she leaves Elisha, goes home, and shuts the door. Which is that, it's a neat detail because he'd said, go home and shut the door. And the account makes sure that we know that she did exactly that. She went home, shut the door. Elisha's not sneaking in and adding oil. Nobody's sneaking in and adding oil here. This is God. God at work privately behind closed doors. This is not a miracle that God's doing to show off, to bring attention. It's a private miracle done for the sake of deliverance. She brought her emptiness to God. And God brought His fullness to her. Just as He does for us in Christ Jesus. In John chapter 1. Apostle writes, from his, from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace from beginning to end, blessing upon blessing. That's what we get from the fullness of God. And when God steps in, this is the great thing, He's not just giving her a leg up. He's not just giving her enough to hang in there and get things going again. God makes us miraculously full. Look at how He does that for the vid- widow in verse 6. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. He said to her, there's not enough. And then the oil stopped flowing. The oil doesn't stop until every empty jar is filled. How much does that end up being? Well, we don't know how many jars or vessels. I mean, we could be talking large earthen containers the size of a barrel. We don't know how much oil there was. But oil was valuable. And if she had sold just the one flask or the one jar that she had to begin with, that could have maybe paid for a few months' worth of bills. It wouldn't have gotten her sons out of slavery, though. And when everything was over, she would have been back where she started without the oil. But after God steps in and provides, look where she sits in verse 7. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. The oil provided is not only enough to redeem and rescue her sons, it's enough to live off of in the days ahead. She goes from desperately in debt to having an income. Now why do we care? God isn't telling us to go home and get as many empty boxes as you can and God's going to provide groceries. The cookies just didn't stop flowing. That's not what's going on here. There's more to this story than that. The bigger question is not, can God rescue this one person in debt? There's two bigger questions in the mind of God's people as they hear this story. Number one, does God care about me when I'm in trouble? And we see that, yes, God cares. He's aware of your deepest need. And He cares greatly about seeing that you're rescued. Second question, will God rescue when I'm lost and in distress? Remember, I said the stories of 2 Kings were not written right after they happened. They weren't written to the people who witnessed these things. They were written for the community of God's people. Generations later, as they've been sold into slavery, conquered by another nation, and they're wondering, does God care that we've been sold into slavery like this woman's sons? Does God care about the desperate situation we we are in? That's where we find ourselves connected to this story as well. Like the original readers of the miracle, we too are in a state of lostness emptiness conquered by sin and enslaved and we ask does god care what do i have to do to convince him 
to reply. And the story of the widow teaches God's people that not only does God care about His people in need, but He will also miraculously fully redeem them. God will provide what is needed to buy them back, but not only that, the oil doesn't just pay her debts for one day, it sets her up for the future. That's what God wants His people to understand, even in exile. We're familiar with Jeremiah 29.11. We have to understand that that was written to God's people in slavery, in exile in Babylon. And through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord said, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. God's redeeming love doesn't just get you out of trouble. It doesn't just save you from the past. He provides for your future as well. Too often we think about salvation as a past event. Jesus died on a cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins. Amen? It doesn't end there, though. I'm discouraged by that reaction. Jesus died on the cross so that you can be forgiven of your sins. Amen? There we go. But that's not all. Okay, now I sound like a salesman. That's not all. There's more to it than that. One of my favorite stories of Scripture, easily top two, the first sermon I ever preached in this church, and I think there are maybe three of you in this room that were here back then, is the story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, the son of King Saul. And David, we all know David, David had made a promise to Jonathan, I'm going to take care of you and your family. I'm, I'm going to covenant to, to, to have a... a faithful relationship with your family, Jonathan. But Saul was his enemy. And when Saul's kingdom fell and David's kingdom was on the rise, all of Saul's family was fleeing the palace for their life because the, the, the culture of that day, when a new king entered, he would wipe out the old king's family so there were no, nobody else could challenge him for the throne. Now David didn't do that. He didn't need to do that because he knew God had given him the throne. But all of Saul's family was fleeing in terror. And Mephibosheth, five years old, being carried by a nurse, she trips, she falls, crushes his legs. And he's crippled the rest of his life. And when we next see Mephibosheth, decades later, he is living on somebody else's property, relying on the charity and benevolence of another because he can't work. He has nothing. He's a fugitive from the king. If he, if he shows up, he's going to be king. David asks his servants, he says, is there anyone left in Jonathan's household towards whom I can show the kindness of God? I want to show what the kindness of God is like. And they seek out Mephibosheth. And they bring Mephibosheth into the king, who at that point Mephibosheth's probably thinking, this is the end of my story. Here dies Mephibosheth, slaughtered by the enemy king. But no, David not only welcomes Mephibosheth in and, and shows him mercy by not executing him, he also restores to Mephibosheth all the land that belonged to King Saul. So now Mephibosheth is earning an income off of that land the rest of his life. And he gives Mephibosheth a place of honor at his table so that Mephibosheth dines with the king. That's what God does. Remember, David said, I want to show the kindness of God. That's what the goodness of God, the kindness, the love of God does. It doesn't just forgive you and mercifully say, all right, I'm not going to execute you. Fine. It brings you in. It gives you a seat at the table. It sets you up with land and properties and, and provision for the future. That's how God cares for His people. 
Romans chapter 8 describes the work of God in salvation like this. Those whom God predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Called, that work of the Holy Spirit that brings you to Jesus. Justified, that word we like to throw around that means being made right with God. Having your sin taken out of the picture. And too many of us think that that's where salvation ends. That salvation means we're justified. It means that, but it means more than that. Because Paul goes on to say, those whom God justified, He glorified. Glorified means we make it to the end. To that time, as we heard already in, in Revelation 21, when, when all evil and sin and failure and imperfection in the world is just removed forever. That's the big picture of salvation according to Scripture. And notice that Paul talks about it as if it's past tense. Not will be glorified. He glorified already. That's how certain it is. That's the fullness of what God does to redeem you and deliver you. Doesn't just pay off the debt of the widow, but sets her up for all the days to come so that she need never worry again. And here's the great part. My grammar nerds, that verse that we looked at in Romans 8, if we can get that back up there. Who is active? Who is the subject of that sentence? Who's doing it? Who is calling? Who is justifying? Who is glorifying? It is God. He is the, the active subject in that sentence. Not us. We're not the ones that glorify ourselves. It is God who has done all the work. He is the one who fills the jars. God does it beginning to end. Without God at work, all the widow would have done was poured the same little bit of oil from one vessel to the next. And nothing would have happened. But with God at work, there is a miracle. Without God at work, we are going about our day trying to be good and nice people, trying to find some reason to have hope, trying to find something to distract us from the insanity of the world around us. But with God, we who were desperately empty are made miraculously full. What God has provided for us is no temporary cure, no half measure, no partial salvation. What God has given you in Jesus Christ is full and total provision for all you need now and forever. When we are provided for in that way, when we are that taken care of, our priorities change. How much of our time, how much of our emotional energy is spent trying to find ways to feel secure, trying to find things to make us feel important, or accepted, we live as if we have one jar of oil left and we don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. We live enslaved to the attention and the acceptance of others. We live fearful of the next news report. We live in awe of great and famous people and the things they say. We live as if all of eternity hangs on the next bit of legislation. We live as if all of our hope is bound up in our bank balance. We live as if all of our joy will come from the TV. That is a life of desperate emptiness. But a miraculously full life looks different. There's a life that knows you are taken care of, knows that you're provided for, knows that you are loved. And as the Apostle John said in 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. A life where perfect love casts out fear is a life of joy unswayed by the news. A life of courage and worth that's not connected to 
popular opinion. A life so firmly grounded is set free to love others without condition, without fear of rejection. A love, a life so firmly grounded in that love is set free to, to live generously without fear of shortfall. It's set free to endure the burden of a difficult relationship without the fear of not being loved in return. A life of miraculous fullness is secure and bold and filled with unspeakable joy. I'm not grasping at straws here. I'm not trying to read something into the text. The story of 2 Kings, the story here of the prophet Elisha, is at its heart a story about God's power to restore His people. And one of the ways we see that is that He redeems us. He saves us from the threat of captivity and provides for us so that we never need fear the debtor, the creditor coming around again to claim us. Look at how Jesus describes it in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive. Jesus says that when we believe in him, we go from a state of being thirsty, empty, needy, deprived, to a state of being not only full, but overflowing as if we have a spring, a river flowing from us. Which would you rather have, a gallon of water or a river of water? What's going to take better care of you? Children of God, you don't need to make that choice. As you believe in Him, you have that river, that supply. Be reminded of that when you feel in need or in want. Be reminded of that when, when fear knocks at your heart's door. You can reply, there is no room because love has taken up occupancy in my heart. The love of God provides for all my needs. And as we prepare our hearts this morning, morning, i got one minute left in the morning, to celebrate the Lord's Supper this afternoon. Let it be that. Let it be a celebration. I, I, I don't want that to be words. When we say we're going to celebrate communion, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, let it be a celebration. How do you think that woman and her sons felt when the oil kept flowing and flowing and flowing and they saw, we are rich. We don't need to be afraid. It's a celebration. Let us celebrate the Lord's Supper where we see that we, in our great need, our desperate lostness, we have seen that need fully met by the provision of God to us in Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for that today. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for what You have provided. Even when we did not know what we truly needed, You provided it. Thank you for that. We pray that we would not live as if we are deprived. Teach us to know and believe and to live as fully cared for, fully redeemed, delivered, and with a future. May your perfect love cast out our fear. For we know that those whom you have delivered, you never fear again. Thank you in our Savior's name. Amen. As we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper and celebrate it together, let's be reminded that this speaks to us of our union with Jesus. We are united 
to Christ. And this is a reminder of that union. And that union to Christ teaches us many things. One of the things it teaches us, according to Scripture, is that we are united with Him in His death. And so the death He dies is the death we needed to die. As we take the bread and drink the cup, we are reminded that He took on human flesh so that He could take our place in death. We are united to Him. And that death that He died was a ransom for us. Because of that death, we are set free. And the creditors that would come around and and try to claim our souls are told that that bill, that debt is paid in full. But we are not only told that we are united with His death, we are also united with Him, Scripture says, in His resurrection, in His new life. And so it is not only for the things that are behind us that we have received provision, it is for the days ahead. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, let it remind you that this has also provided a sure and certain future, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And that He who is resurrected and lives forever has united us, connected us with Himself so that we too are resurrected and live forever. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, your sting, is gone forever. But the Lord's Supper comes also with a warning. That it's not to be taken lightly. It is not for those who profess Jesus in word, but not in deed. Whose hearts are not committed. Who still trust themselves or something else for deliverance. You will still need to pay the debt of sin. It also is a warning for those who, by their failure to forgive, their refusal to forgive, or by their failure to repent are breaking the union of God's people. We are not only united to Christ, but we who are united in Him are united together. And if there is a sin that you are not repenting of, you are not seeking forgiveness of your brother or sister, you are not seeking to make right what you have made wrong, and you are warned not to take this. Or if another has wronged you, and you have held that sin over them and not forgiven them, when even as they have repented, if you are withholding the forgiveness that God grants, then you are warned to first make it right before celebrating the Lord's Supper, which symbolizes our unity, which is only possible through Jesus Christ. If anything I've said has made you feel like you are not worthy of this, like you are not good enough for this, like you are not strong enough for this, then this is for you. Because this is for those who recognize and acknowledge their desperate need of Christ. If that is you, it doesn't matter what church you come from, what denomination you come from. If you have trusted in Christ and live as the Holy Spirit enables, live obediently to Him, this is for you. To celebrate your union to Him, to be strengthened in your faith, to be reminded of the promises, and to be called again to your commitment. Let's prepare our hearts in prayer for that. Heavenly Father, you are a good host. And you welcome us to your table. I pray that we would receive these things worthily. Pray that we who are weak, we who are doubting, we who are fearful, we who are uncertain, will be made strong. As we feed, may we be strengthened in our faith. For you are here. By your Holy Spirit, strengthen your children 
and teach us to rejoice. Remind us of these things as we taste, as we smell, as we touch. May we be drawn into the reality of what you have done for us. Be strengthened as we remain. And do these things until you return. Because when you return, they will not be needed. And we will feast together. Until that day, strengthen us with your supper, we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, giving thanks, broke it, passed it around to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance.